Have you ever wondered why it is that we do what we do and who we do it with? Then this is a podcast for you, an exploration of human beings through systemic psychology and Unani biotypes with Rodrigo Garcia Platas, Ross Everett, and Brian McElhaney. This is Biotypical. A while ago, we just finished a, a, a BYB cohort, and there was one session that was like 90% going over the different types of systemic loyalties based in systemic psychology. And I thought this just needs to be a podcast episode that we can assign as homework so we can free up some time in the BYB session and allow people to also experience all this stuff because it's just good information. It was just like one of those things where I was like, oh, that is so cool, all of this information. And, and for those of you that have, you know, either listened to the podcast a lot or watched the lives or, or talked with us on Clubhouse, um, we've always kind of talked about RGP development being the intersection of Unani biotypes and systemic psychology. We talk a lot about biotypes. We've talked a fair amount about systemic psychology, but I think it'd be really cool to get into the different types of systemic loyalties. So this episode I proposed to the group uh, is going to be a breakdown of essentially what we would tell people, teach people in that BYB uh, session about systemic loyalties. So also this can serve as homework. So if you're going through BYB right now and you're, you know, enjoying it and you're, you're listening to this as your homework, welcome. Hello. We did this for you. So Rodrigo, take it, take it away from me. Just grab the mic. Take it away from me. (laughs) Can I just sidetrack for a minute before we begin with a dense information about systemic psychology? Yes. Yes, please. Brian, why are you called marbles today? (laughs) (laughs) You've <laughs> been asking me that all week. Um, I was on a Zoom where somebody changed my name to Marbles in all caps, and I thought I renamed it, but Zoom keeps renaming me Marbles. Um, so uh, I can go into more detail if you'd like, but that's the short story. That, that Shout works. out to Pete Scalziti. I just love that that's immortalized <laughs> now in this episode that will be listened to by future BYB cohorts for years to come. <laughs> Welcome to Biotypical with Roz Rodrigo and Marbles. And Marbles. <laughs> yeah, I've been through quite a shift with my BYB. I've changed a lot about myself and my name is now Marbles in all capital letters. <laughs> and if you don't call me that, I'm leaving. That uh, sounds like the worst promotional ad ever. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's so true. It's like, it's not a cult, okay? I went, I learned so much about myself, and now my name is Marbles. It's like, all right, never go to BYB. <laughs> Do you know that numerology actually does that? They give you an extra name that balances the numerology of your name. Really? Really? Yeah. Do you have yeah. to go by it? Or they just go, this is now your new name. I mean, I don't know because I've never been through it, but I have friends that just showed up. I remember this one guy specifically. We were really close back then. And his his name is Genaro. And then it was Genaro Alcarini because it balanced the num- the numerology of his name. I thought it was interesting, but I would never go like, my name is Rodrigo Starajaraja. Like, I, I don't think I would you do You already that. have too many names. <laughs> 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 Rodrigo Garcia Platas. You're yeah. right. <laughs> There's no okay, let's dive in into... Okay, no enough fun and games. God. Now let's get into the density of the information. Um, just to note also to our, our patrons, if you guys have any questions, feel free to uh, type them in the chat and we'll address them as well. And Brian, unlock your little melancholic mind and allow it to, to dig in because I'm sure that everyone listening to this will have questions and, and you're really good at asking them. 
don't call my mind little. Uh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't ever tell a melancholic that he has a little mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lock your little emotions. Yeah. <laughs> Your oh, little stupid wish. emotions. Yeah. <laughs> that I love you guys with, so much. That landed with Rose so hard. <laughs> <laughs> because it was perfect. Yeah. And I was wondering, yeah, what would you tell me? Little hands. <laughs> <laughs> That's for fake fires. Yeah. I don't know what we would tell a sanguine. Sponge, raw, square hands. <laughs> <laughs> And I just thought of that. Yeah, literally I, right I can now. tell. I didn't think you wrote that down. You're like, work this in at some point. <laughs> I was waiting for the right moment to just yeah. sing the song. Can you tell that I have a five month old baby and I'm working like crazy? Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so systemic psychology. Let's let's explain this a little bit. So uh, the real birth of psychology, as we understand it today. And everybody that has done intro to biotypes knows a little bit about this. Started with psychoanalysis. So for the first time, we decided to actually talk to people and figure out who they are by talking to them and instead of giving them electroshocks in their head, which was the, the common practice back then. So it was Freud and then Jung and then Lacan who started saying, maybe if we talk to people and maybe if we figure out their beliefs and their subconscious, because there's a subconscious part of people that was a really new concept um, and we deal with it, maybe we can change them. And it started dealing with personality and beliefs. It was extremely powerful because given that we had no tools before that, but electroshocking people, um, it, it was like groundbreaking. Then after a while, psychoanalysis started uh, creating many subdivisions and new understandings. But the, the main break from the theory that was really interesting was structuralism. Now, structuralism had the understanding of individuals, their beliefs and their personality, but also included the structures that this person belonged to. So I always use this like example to, to explain it because I think it's, it's uh, easy to follow. Like I'm Mexican. So um, I'm Mexican, but I'm also a man. So there are two structures there. Like the first one is being Mexican, the other one is being a man. And if you wanted to understand me, you would need to understand the overlap of those two structures. But then you go like, oh, but he also really likes soccer and he played soccer as a kid. So there's another structure. And then, but her mom is from Spain. So there's another structure. And his dad is from Northern Mexico. So there's another structure. And, and then you start understanding people's beliefs and personalities, given their, their exposure to different structures of beliefs and ideologies. So you understand people by the structures that they belong to and the context that those structures create. Then after that, Bert Hellinger took this to a completely different level by saying, yeah, but what about the subconscious part of structures? Like what about the, the hidden loyalties that exist within a structure that are never mentioned, that are, that are never explained, uh, but by belonging to them, you, you follow them. So in other words, um, I, I, I need to explain context really, really quick for this to, to make sense. When we're dealing with an individual, we're trying to figure out their beliefs in order to understand who they are and why they react the way they do to life. Uh, 
When you're looking at a group of people, the equivalent of that is looking for the context, paying attention to what is it, what it is that brings these people together and able to function together. Every company, every family, every state, every country, like every group of people have a context. And the context is like the subconscious of the group, the hidden beliefs that gets these people together. In order to explain... Um, to, to, in order to understand context myself, I, I made this exercise in my head when I switched schools and something really shifted when I was a kid. I, I studied in a very typical Mexican school that have very rigid and precise beliefs about what a man should be. And uh, we didn't know that back then. We didn't talk about it. It's the hidden beliefs and the hidden truths about what it means to be a man that everybody follows within a context, even when no one mentions it, even when no one sits down and says, the, the, these are the rules. So the rules, according to, to the way I see it now, looking back in the, in the first school that I went to was, if you want to be a man, you need to say swear words, to play soccer, to chase girls and to get bad grades. That was pretty much the main elements of what built a man. But then after middle school, when they changed me to a British school that had a completely different system and a completely different understanding, they put me in that school. And guess what my egoic brain started doing? Getting bad grades. (laughs) Yes, but also looking for what my subconscious believed men were. So I started paying attention around me to see who were acting like what I thought a man should be. Uh, that's why in Spanish, so many times we say, Dime con quien te juntas y te diré quien eres, which means tell me who you hang around with and I'll tell you exactly who you are. Because if you tell me who you hang around with, I know exactly the context that, that you live in. Yeah, the, uh, I think there's a Tony Robbins quote that's, uh, our life is a reflection of the expectations of our peers. And that's like... You know, it's it's like your MySpace top eight if you morph them all together. Yeah, and also you. when you start when you start changing and doing self work, your friend group starts changing. That is absolutely true. Like relationships that were completely logical and coherent stop making sense. Yeah, it's true. And then people that you never connected with now suddenly are amazing towards you and you towards them. It's it's really interesting. Now. Um, what, I, what, I, what I wanted to say is I started looking for what I thought a man was given the context and beliefs that I was carrying with me. So I saw a group of kids from my grade playing soccer, being really rude to each other and using a lot of swear words. And I was like, that's my crowd. So I went with them. We became friends like that. Like it, it was immediate because we have so many, so many beliefs and codes about meanings of what it means to be a man that we shared that it was just plug and play. Uh, it felt like we knew each other for years and years. So we became really close friends. They were my new group. I was really happy up until grades came in. And in the first instant the grades came, I had flunked four subjects and I remember bragging about it. This, this was really embarrassing. I remember sitting with them in the middle of a break and telling them, ha look at this, I flunked four. And I remember the faces of one of them. His name is Ricardo. I remember the moment perfectly because it was so embarrassing. He said, what? You flunked a subject? And I said, yeah, four. And he said, why? Don't you care about your future? And I said, what do you mean? And suddenly I realized that I was in a group of friends that were fighting for the highest GPA in the grade, like in the, in the class. And, and I was like, huh, no one explained anything to me. 
No teacher could have changed the way I acted. They tried for years. My parents could have, couldn't have changed me. Like the principal couldn't have changed me. But inserting me in a context where being a man meant something new completely shifts us. So by the time we got the next grades, I was fighting for the highest grade in class. And I never stopped being a good student after that because I had a new meaning to what it means to be a man. Uh, so the context where we grow and the context that we create around us actually create hidden truths, things that we never say, that we never mention, but mean something to all of us. And we follow it as our personal beliefs, as, as, our, as our own personal Bible. Now, in structuralism, we were paying attention to that. But then systemic psychology started understanding structures as life systems that balance each other out constantly. So the, the easiest way I believe to understand systemic psychology is understanding a family the way you understand the human body. So in your body, you have, you have some senses. And what happens to the human body if you lose a sense? For example, you lose your eyesight or you lose your hearing. Another one heightens. Uh, the, you got it. <laughs> Thanks. Very good, Ross. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like that it. little mind is being yeah. a little bit slow. It's tiny, isn't it? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I love you guys. Uh, <laughs> exactly, son. Sony is telling me on the comments. Like other senses get heightened in order to compensate because life systems will always look for balance. That's the truth. Just like water, it will always level up. It always looks for balance. So what happens is if you lose your eyesight, for example, your body will start shifting certain things so that things like senses and, and movements that you probably didn't use a lot before, like, like touch and how you move. And uh, like, I've even seen blind people that know how to do this with their mouth. So they can yes. hear sound bouncing back. There's a guy in Europe that that's absolutely blind. I just by doing that sound, he rides his bike everywhere wow. i've seen i've seen that video yeah what it's, it's like what mind use, where it's like you can like sonar or yeah, is like it sonar? sonar it's what yeah you send out a thing you can hear like because of the echo like how far away something is it's so cool that's wild and that means that everybody has that has that ability yeah. but only when your system is balancing out trying to to make you stay as normal as possible uh then then you make those those other senses heighten so Bert Hellinger started studying uh, the patterns within groups and the patterns within structures until he realized that systems are alive. And not only do they carry beliefs and meaning, but they actually try and balance out and compensate so many things to accommodate other people or to, or to cover for people that left in the exact same way that your body would do that. Like if I remove your kidney, uh, which some people need to for medical reasons uh, then your body starts using up the space in different ways and accommodating everything inside uh, like life is just mind-blowing and the way it adapts is just mind-blowing but we never pay it we never really paid attention to to this sort of principles when it didn't have to do with evolution like of course if you put a community in a very specific uh cold area there will be some evolution in getting used to the cold but 
when it has to do with psychology and the way we react, create identity and relationships, it wasn't until Bert Hellinger started mentioning this that we went like, okay, uh, we really need to pay attention to this. So um, it has to do with when you belong to a system the way we all do, even if we don't have a relationship with our parents or our siblings, we still belong to that system and we still carry the rules with us, the unwritten and unspoken rules about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to love, what it means to be in relationship. Um, now, we can break down some of the patterns by describing it this way. Um, First, we have patterns and then we have loyalties. So let's speak about the patterns first. Um, if, if two people start creating a relationship, it doesn't matter if it's a romantic relationship, a friendship, a partnership. And for example, both of them have a very specific way of being that they use in order to survive in life. Like uh, they're both really funny. If you put them together and ask them to work together, what will usually happen is that one of them will act funnier than they usually act, and one of them will start acting a little bit less funny in order to accommodate the system and how it's going to work. And it can be being funny, it can be being angry, it can be being sensitive, it can be being wise. Like if you if you put two really wise people that their systems really acknowledge for being so wise, profound, smart, and a gift to the world, and you put them together, one of them will shine way more and the other one will stop shining so much. And it's, it's the way the system will balance out in order not to create competition and anger and all of these problems that happen when we just listen to our ego and don't pay attention to what we're building. So this is like the healing process of a system in order to accommodate everyone in it. So I was talking to someone in a, in a, in a coaching session uh, a few hours ago, and we were talking about what happened when her father-in-law passed away. And, and she was like, well, he passed away and that family changed. And I said, yeah, but how? And she said, well, he was extremely dominant. And I said, okay, so when he passed away, how did the system readjust for that lack of dominance? And she said, oh, I never thought of it like that, but it, but it did. And I said, okay, what happened? And she said, well, the older brother kind of became exactly like the father to a point in which most of the grandchildren from the family call him grandpa. They started calling him grandpa because he acts exactly as grandpa. That means that the system has certain truths about power and authority and how it's supposed to work. And the family wouldn't have survived not having a powerful masculine leader that was guiding them through. And even though many of them suffer through it, because it's horrible to have one person ruling the family and telling everyone how they should be, they they need it subconsciously so the system readjusts, someone pays a price, sacrifices themselves, and becomes that person for the rest of the, of the, uh, the rest of the system to be able to shine. Now, that's just general explanation. Uh, but first, we have the systemic patterns of belonging. Systemic patterns of belonging mean that the system that you come from has very specific uh, truths about how marriage should work. Uh, how you should have sex, how you should eat, how your health should work. Um, to give you an example, like a typical systemic pattern that I see people following is I've had so many patients and students that are always telling me stories about how all the women in the family get cancer, breast cancer and die, like for four generations. Believe it or not, 
If you can see something like that in your system, you better start paying attention why your system needs that. Because if not, subconsciously, everything inside of you is going to try to have the exact same thing that they have so that you still belong to the system. Now, that's not really a loyalty. That's more of a pattern, uh, which is all women die of cancer in this family, specifically breast cancer. So if I want to belong to the system, I need to get sick. I need to get cancer. And it's funny because when they get it, uh, um, not it doesn't necessarily mean cancer, but when they get whatever it is, even if it's extremely painful, or even if, if, it, if it means going into a life and death situation, they feel at like a double mixed emotion. On one side, of course, they're scared. Of course, this is dangerous. Of course, they're afraid for their lives. But on the other side, they feel a level of belonging that they never felt before. It feels like you just graduated like women's school or men's school in order to belong to the system. It, it makes the system love you, protect you, care for you the way it never has before. So it creates that, this confusion in people of, of, I'm going through something horrible, but I love how it feels. Like I love how my family and my system are reacting. They've never loved me like this. They've never cared for me like this. Of course, this is rarely conscious. People rarely realize this, but that sense of belonging to the system is usually stronger than your ability to create your your health or the results and relationships that you wish you could have. And it's funny because people trying to run away from these things and to escape their systemic patterns think that maybe if I stop speaking to my family and I just move to Thailand, I'll, I'll probably stop this and it won't happen. And I've seen it a million times that they, you can move to the other side of the universe and never call them again. You'll just look for new people in the new context that you're in that will fit your ideology and your system and carry on playing the exact same game, game because you're still part of the family and you'll get sick just in a different country and use other people to play the exact same game. It's hard to break systemic patterns because not only are they subconscious like beliefs, but they're, they actually give you a sense of home, a sense of, mm. of, of understanding life and how it unfolds in front of you. Like you're equipped for this. You've been paying attention to people getting sick like this for so many years that when you get there, it, it was obvious and you know how to react. And it gives you, again, a sense of belonging to the system that we value so much. And this can be a disease. This can be getting divorced. This can be cheating. Uh, this can be um, even things like the second son always dies in this system. It, yeah, it reminds me of, uh, I mean, this is a piece of fiction, but in the movie Forrest Gump, Forrest Gump saves Lieutenant Dan from dying in war. And Lieutenant Dan's like, I was supposed to die. Everyone in my family dies in a war. And then his life becomes terrible he like he just goes into this deep depression for the rest of his life because he was like i was supposed to die and it's like that is absolutely I true. That plot point and it's because it's like oh it's systemically correct the way that he's like holding on to that pattern exactly and this this person is telling him like you're removing my belonging to my family do not save me. This is how I'm supposed to die. And people are willing to die in order to belong to their system, in, in, wow. in, in, in order to feel like they're still connected to their origin. Man, I love that you just referenced Forrest Gump. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like that. What a perfect reference, too. And I'm like, oh, yeah, Bubba Gums. There's a, there's I was also thinking, that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there is. Yeah. Um, I was also thinking, like, when people move around the world, there's a quote that I've often heard, which is uh, it's like a cliche, but it's wherever you go, there you are. 
I've always like tried to pick apart what that means, but that sort of makes more sense now. It's like wherever you yeah. try to go, you're that you're going to be there. The the you we, that's inside. That's we we have we have an easier way of explaining it in Spanish. I, yeah. I think in Spanish we say puedes salir del barrio, pero el barrio no va a salir de ti, which means you can get out of the hood, but the hood will never get out of you. Why are you guys so poetic? Uh, in your language, all the you have a quote for everything, and they're all like kind of beautiful, and they're very visceral, and I you understand it, them very well. It has to do. This is, we're going to sidetrack a little bit, but this is interesting. It it has to do with with uh, the purpose uh, of how we use language and the cultures that use it. Remember that we've talked about this in the past about how if you really want to understand a culture, you need to understand how they use language because the corners that they find in language and how they bend it and use it will tell you more about the culture than the language itself. Mm. So it's really interesting, but uh, English is made to be short and precise. That's why, it, it, like, that's why it has become the most important international language. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, of course it has to do with the dominance of the, of the US uh, and the UK before that. But, but the truth is that people adopt it really fast because English is easy compared to other languages, like very easy. It tries to be simple and precise to the point. It's onomatopoeic and monosyllabic so it's short and it sounds like what it's trying to describe so that's what makes english very precise but sometimes hard to use in order to describe things properly because if you pay attention to the amount of words that the normal american uses uh like the amount of different words that they use the number is really small compared to other languages so i i always say it this way English is perfect if you want to take a whole concept and, and bring it down to one word that everyone will understand. Things like bullshit. Uh, when you say bullshit, that's a whole meaning. It has nothing to do with shit from a bull. It, it, it has a, a whole meaning. And languages that come, that we call them romances, uh, languages that come from Latin are very descriptive. So the difference is in English, you can take a whole concept and put it in a word. In Spanish, you can write a whole book about how something smells. Like in, in Spanish, you can describe in a thousand words one thing. That's why poetry in French, Italian, Portuguese, Spanish, uh, even Romanian, which is which is also a, a Romance language, um, they're highly descriptive, and we have a ridiculous amount of adjectives and different words to describe the exact same thing. It's like you guys have like and love. In Spanish, we have like. I care. I'm interested. I kind of like you. I'm attracted to you. I love you. I adore you. And then we have another love you, which is amo. So, so it's like we have so many levels to everything. That's, that's why sometimes Latin people are not afraid of saying I love you in the lower side because te quiero, it means I want you and I love you a little. And te amo means I really love you. I, I've yeah, always I, had I, trouble I, with I love you because I'm always like, what does this mean? Like, it, yeah. <laughs> it goes from like nothing to I love you. It's like, I'm like, I don't know if I'm ready. What are you thinking that word means? What am I thinking it means? There's just like such a space that it can I've represent. had male friends be like, you you say I love you to me. And like, they're like, it's weird to me. What, what do you mean by that? <laughs> and I'm like, well, like the Greeks have eight different words for love, meaning all yeah. the different facets of it. And I'm just like, I, I care about you. You're, you're like a really close friend. I love you, you know? Um, and I, I mean like, that, uh, you know, quarantine's been kind of long. There's even so, some even like really low key ways to, uh, 
to to say I love you in Spanish. Like, for example, you can send a text message that says te pienso, which means I thank you. I thank you. Like I think about you type of thing? Yeah. Here. Pero, but, but it's not I'm thinking about you, which, which would be in Spanish, estoy pensando en ti. You just say te pienso. And it's a very poetic way of, of saying you're in my thoughts, like you're in my head. And it's the first way of saying like I'm here, like you, you matter to me. And then Portuguese, as we mentioned in another episode, even have saudades, which is a whole different thing. But anyways, coming back to our thing after that sidetrack, um, what were we talking about before we went to the systemic loyalty, familially sticking to them, wanting to feel part of your... We, this, this started because Brian said the thing about Lieutenant Dan and how it was yes. like, you took my life away. Yeah. Oh, I said, wherever you go, there you are. And you're like, uh, the hood stays in you. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, that's prettier. Well, I, I can, oh, I Sony, Sony's it. saying something else about language that I, that I like, which is, it's like, me gustas isn't saying I like you. It's more like, you cost me joy. That's true. Oh, that's cool. I like that. Yeah. Oh, that's, in, how cool is that? In fact, Brian, you were asking what love is. Do you yes. want to know the best psychological definition of love I've ever found in my life? Tell me what love is. I need to know. <laughs> <laughs> it's in Spanish. It, it, it was written by, a, by a, an Argentine psychotherapist, Bucay. And he, he explains it like this. Uh, amor es el absoluto regocijo por la existencia del otro. And in English, it sounds like this. It's love. It's when you... When you absolutely rejoice because someone else exists yes i love Aww. that i love that yeah I love that, that sentence exists so i love it Me gusta. <laughs> <laughs> sony just said i had an eargasm yeah. <laughs> this yeah, was so I... funny because in my sorry but in in my wedding uh the priest yeah i guess he always does this like his this is like his neat trick and he's standing like in the church with all of your family and friends behind you. And as you're kneeling down in front of the altar, I'm, I'm like, I had a Catholic wedding and he, the, the priest stood in front of us and he said, you want to get married because you say you love each other, but what is love? And I was like, me, 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 me. <laughs> and he was, he was not expecting it. And I was like, el absoluto regocijo de la existencia del otro. And he was so confused. He was like, I was not expecting that. That's the right psychological answer. Uh, let's move on. <laughs> you passed your wedding. Congratulations. Exactly. I could see at Roe's wedding, like the priest talking and like cut to five minutes later and Roe has the microphone. And the priest is <laughs> like, no, you keep going. I, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, this is amazing stuff. Well, I've officiated other people's weddings, so I could have done mine. <laughs> sure but it would have been systemically wrong for reasons <laughs> that you guys will understand in a few minutes so the first thing you need to understand is systemic patterns now systemic patterns start as easily as understanding that if all men in your system cheated then you're going to feel this this need to cheat yourself in order to carry on like belonging to your system and you're going to have this battle inside of you of, of, of thinking why am I doing this? Because people get that constantly. When they're following a, a systemic pattern, they start asking themselves, I don't even like this. Why am I doing this? Why am I sending messages to another girl? I'm really happy with my wife. Like, why am I doing this? It makes no sense. Like a systemic pattern can be everybody in your family is fat. 
and then being the only skinny one is pretty much breaking the system, like not belonging to the system. It's disrespectful for the rest of the system. And then you can see skinny people trying to gain weight in a subconscious way and going like, why am I eating this? I don't even like it. I already had dinner. Why am I eating something else? And they don't even know why they're doing it, but they can't stop. So it, it gets darker and deeper than that. I've met people and I've worked with people in the past that actually have certain systemic patterns like offering sex, like when, the, when sex was extremely available within your system and there was even some incest, this is how I got to the sexual emotional collapse theory that I created. But it's, if my dad was willing to see me have sex or not see me, but kind of offer me to have sex with my uncle or, or my, grand, my granddad or my aunt or my grandmother or like whatever it is, that probably means that when someone loves me, the, very, the best thing that I can give them is sex. And then people, people that have that systemic pattern, you treat them nicely and they offer sex immediately because they think that that's what people are looking for. And that gives them a sense of belonging to their system. I'm treating you like the, the way my dad would treat me and how I love treating people because this is who my family is. And then they end up having sex with people that they don't like. And, and in the middle of it, they usually go like, why am I doing this? I hate this. I'm not enjoying this at all. Why am I doing it? When people start asking themselves why they're doing something and there's no logical explanation to carry on doing it, but they can't really stop, that's probably a systemic pattern that you're following in order to belong to your system, even if you're hurting yourself or hurting others while you do it. Now, the second type of pattern has to do with becoming someone for the system. And th this is a loyalty. We're stepping into the loyalties. But th this is the example that, that I just gave of my student that she gave me permission to share, which is um, if my father-in-law died, someone needs to sacrifice for the system. The system needs an, an authoritarian leader that believes that he or she is always right. Someone needs to step in. We have this weird idea that when someone steps into that place because the system needs it, they're doing it out of ego and arrogance. But the truth is that becoming that human being is pretty much emotional suicide because you'll never be able to break down or ask for support or tell people that you don't know what to do. You're going to need to have answers for the rest of your life. And in this case, because it was the father and now the mom is a widow, if you choose that place, you will become your mother's emotional provider and start acting like her husband way more than her son or daughter. And then that person will be seen as someone who's selfish and trying to control everyone, but they're actually sacrificing themselves so that the system can carry on without healing itself. Because the only way to stop patterns like this with the whole family is to have enough people within the system wanting to wake up and pay attention to why we're doing this, to why we're reenacting an, uh, an old scene again with just new characters. And if they don't do it, someone will need to sacrifice. And here's the worst part the system will hate them for it. No one values the person that pays the price and becomes the symptom. Like their siblings will start seeing them as you're not being, you're not being respectful towards us. You're not our father. Why are you treating us like this? They're going to use his strength. They're going to use his money. They're going to use his, his wisdom. But in the end, they can't be thankful because you're not my dad. And you're trying to treat me like a son when we're siblings. So the person that, that becomes the new symptom in the system is usually sacrificing their lives. That's why I always say that it's pretty much like emotional suicide.
Damn. This makes me think of a lot of things. The first thing that I think about is, I, I, have you ever noticed this before, Ross, where it's like, I've always thought about how sometimes, say I'm out with a group of friends I don't know that well, and I feel like kind of awkward around them. And the way I, I'm like, maybe I'm a little timid and I try to say jokes and it doesn't really work. And I just don't feel like me. And then I go and I leave and I go to another group of friends and I'm a totally different person. I feel like on fire. I feel like I'm, you know, I, I'm just sort of like, why wasn't I this person with those people? And part of me is like, am I just like, was I just sort of filling in another role in that system with them? And that's why I was just like naturally kind of becoming what needed. Someone was already taking that spot. And that's why that was happening. It's actually all the way around. It, it, it usually happens like that because you're using the best tools from your systemic pattern with a group of people that don't speak that systemic patterns language. Gotcha. So you're bringing your best gifts given your system. But if, if they have a different systemic loyalty and understanding of life, what you're doing might even be offensive. Like, what the hell is this guy trying to do? Well, like, this is not the space for this. Like, and as soon as you leave, maybe a couple of people went like, what's wrong with that guy? And then you just go with another group of people that maybe have a similar systemic loyalty or a systemic pattern that they're following and then they love you because this is what we usually do we look for people with similar disorders so that the relationship still feels as safe as staying with your system it, so for me it's a it's a little bit different than what brian was giving the example because i'm thinking about like how I, I really had a hard time in middle school. I'm pretty sure I've said that a billion times on this podcast, but like middle school was kind of like where I felt like I, I didn't fit in. We went looking for other schools for me to go to. I visited some other schools. And I remember when I like went and visited those other schools, I felt like so popular. I didn't wind up going to the other schools, but like even when I would go to camp, I'd have like maybe a week or three to five days of feeling cool. And like, I could like, okay, cool. Before I would fall back into this, like kind of outcast kind of like, I, I would do something that I would feel like would be embarrassing. Um, and I even noticed it in my professional life. Like I kind of took this subservient secondary role where I wouldn't feel as smart. I wouldn't feel as funny as, as some of these other people, but you could put me in a separate situation where I'm like, I'm the funniest person here. But you put me in a room full of like comedians and all of a sudden, like I become this try hard who's trying to fit in. Is that so sort of a, a systemic loyalty? That sounds more psychological. It sounds more like, um, like you saying Bolt being the fastest guy and the other guy being the actual fastest guy, but he can't perform in the right situation. Exactly. It's, it sounds more like performance anxiety. It sounds more like these are the heavy hitters and I don't know if I'm that good and I'm going to try really hard, but I'm going to fail at it somehow. Yeah. And many times, it, many times it has to do with your perception more than what was actually happening there. When we want to be right about us not being good enough or not ready at a certain level, even if the, if the people are approving who we are, we're only, gonna use, we're, go, we're only going to use our negativity bias to pay attention to the one person that wasn't liking us. And that's what we're going to remember. I have, some friend, I have one friend in particular who I, I see this where he has so many people that he could hang out with that like, love him and would like empower him but there's like three people he constantly hangs around with that treat him like shit and i'm like don't hang out with those people <laughs> like everyone else will like really take you to a higher place but like he seems addicted to being with the people who like keeps him down and it's it's very interesting to watch that yeah. sounds like an absolute systemic loyalty yeah
It, it, it makes total sense. This might be separate, but I just feel the need to say it. But like sometimes when I'm in a room full of people and I don't find like the funniest person in there funny, but everyone else is like dying laughing at their sense of humor. I feel like such an alien. And I feel like, am I fucking crazy right now like the the world seems to think that like actually this is maybe a microcosm of like what i see going on in the world right now because there's so much television out there that people like oh my god i love this show and i'll be like okay let me check it out and i like i hate the show i'm like this is lazy (laughs) writing this is like really bad character development it feels like like diversity has been shoehorned in it's just like a way to have diversity but it's like it's not well written it's formulaic and it's boring to me but the world seems to like be just like loving it and gushing all over it is that systemic loyalty or am i just i hate that's right fr- I, I think that's frustrating too when i that happens i, don't know I think that's-, that's why you and i are friends brian because you you and i have similar we have similarities and like I love the comedy. opposite though. If everyone hates something and I love it, I love that. That to me is exciting. Oh, <laughs> That's very melancholic. Yeah, I don't feel that. <laughs> Mel- I'm like, I melancholics- see something that you don't. Melancholics are the ones that love something until it becomes fashionable. As soon as it becomes yep. mainstream, they go like, fuck that. Hipsters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I try not to now, be such a hipster, but sometimes it's, now, it's, it's, you, it's no your Ross- biology, dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Now, no, Russ, that's not a systemic loyalty. That's, um, again, something psychological. And that means that you need to start traveling more and meet more foreign comedians because we feel like that every time we listen to a foreigner comedian. Like, I had to learn American comedy. I like I had to learn to understand it and appreciate because you because usually for Latinos it doesn't really make that much sense. How do you define like, American comedy? Like tell tell me something that you seem to think is American comedy. Well, internationally American comedy is is, is supposed to be dumb, especially in movies. It's very physical. Uh they fail. They're stupid. They're saying something ridiculous. They're trying to do something that no one would ever try and do because it's obviously the worst idea in the world. Then you have British comedy, which is smart and complex and sometimes very dark. That then you have Spanish comedy, which for example, it's horrible, like horrible. <laughs> like the only Spanish comedy I enjoy is when someone starts making fun of the different regions in Spain. But for like but that's I contextual. It, yeah, it's it's yeah. it's contextual and it's not about the comedy, it's about the difference between characters. And as I as a psychologist, of course I enjoy that. Yeah. Uh, but for example, Chilean comedy is horrible. Argentine comedy is interesting, but Argentine comedy is usually very sexual. So, huh. so it's interesting yeah. because as you start traveling around and paying attention to different comedians, you start realizing what people find funny and why they find it funny. For example, Mexican comedy is all about tragedy. I, we have to do a different episode about uh, psychology comedy. And comedy because I, <laughs> really I, I want to go down that area. Like I just watched Oh Hello with Nick Kroll and John Mulaney. And I, there's Is your first time watching it. No, it's my I, it was my first time rewatching it. But I <laughs> there's few things funnier to me than those two together. It's a, a beautiful hybrid of like melancholic intelligence, um, uh, uh, promoting fake fire, because I think that's what Nick Kroll is promoting fake fire, just kind of like happy being in the moment. And also it, there's a little bit of clown. Like there's just a joy of relationship between the two of them. You anyway, need to send that to me because I have no idea what you're talking it's about. It's on Netflix. <laughs> I will absolutely send it to you. And then we could, we could do an episode about, uh, about comedy. I, I have a friend who's, Let's do that. she's, she's Polish. Her name is Evelina. Hi, Evelina. And she pitches me comedy ideas all the time. 
And I'm just always like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> it doesn't make, I mean, I tell her this all the time. I'm, I'm always like, what you're just saying isn't, I don't even understand what you're saying to me. It's like a guy should have like, oh, you should make a sketch where like a guy has like a tractor and like mud gets dumped on him or something. And I'll be like, what, what are you talking? What is this? Isn't anything. <laughs> She's like, yes, that's funny. And I'm like, no, it's not. What do you, what's the point of what you just said? We'll go, well, we will absolutely have an episode about this. But anyway, back to- I love you, Evelina. Uh, no, I really want to see that. Yeah, yeah, it landed really hard for Rogue. It's like, yeah, there's a tractor and they dumped it on him. I get it. I can, I can yeah. tell you why. And this is the last thing that we say about comedy in this episode. But when people find that funny, it means that they come from a culture, a context, or a system within in which tragedy is funny. It right, landed yes. for me because I'm Mexican and we laugh about tragedies all the time. Like, all you need is a, Me a Mexico City earthquake. We have some of the most massive earthquakes in the world. And we had one like three, four years ago. And every time we get an earthquake, give it an hour. And it's, as soon as the internet is back, because our earthquakes really destroy everything, um, you're going to see a thousand memes and 10 new jokes about the earthquake. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's you would love like Curb Your Enthusiasm, the, the Larry David show, because it is like all tragedy. It's just like, watch how this guy puts his foot in his mouth and gets himself in the most awkward situations. I started watching it years ago. I liked it at the, I liked it at the beginning, but then it was too much. I, I watched a couple episodes last night and I was like, this is hard to deal with for me. Okay, but let's get back to systemic yeah. psychology. Yeah, I was yeah. thinking about what if you enter a system, like, you know, it's, uh, what if you enter a system like a new job and it's like, you have a role you have to fill in this system and you kind of don't have a choice. Like you can sort of act in any way, but really like to keep your job and to keep the pace of things, you kind of have to fill a role. And that's, you know, I feel like there's circumstances in life where that's just how it is. Yeah, but the choices in how you go about doing it, you could choose to do it, you could choose to do it begrudgingly, you can choose to look on the brighter side of things, you could choose to, um, you know, you could choose to, to siphon it off on someone, you could choose to not do it, and, and yeah. just see how long it takes to catch up with you. I can actually give you way more than that. Yeah, you great. Give a better answer be... to me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, please. <laughs> you would never be chosen for a job to cover a specific need in the system that you're not equipped for. And if they do it, yeah. you, you'll be out of there really soon. So yeah. um, we're, we're consulting for a city in RGP development. And I was just meeting with some of the city leaders uh, a couple of hours ago. And, and I was explaining to them how context works and how you can see it in sports. And how, like, if you guys love soccer, this is going to make a lot of sense for to our soccer fan listeners. But do you, I don't know if you guys have enough information about this to answer this question, but I'll answer it anyways. Um, so um, do you imagine Messi being the star of Real Madrid? Or do you imagine Cristiano Ronaldo being the star of Barcelona? If you love soccer, the answer for that is no, never. Never, because they're both extremely different systems with very different contexts. If you, if you want to be the star for Real Madrid, you need to be someone who's extremely selfish, who believes that no one else understands the truth. Like you need to be a cleric like Cristiano Ronaldo or a fake Beckham. fire or any type of controller. Beckham, who was massive in Real Madrid too. Like that's, that's a good example. Like 
teams hire people that can become a franchise player. And in order to become a franchise player, you need to carry not only the colors of the team, not only the sport of the team, but the ideology and trauma created within the system of the team. And if you go to Barcelona, it's filled with people that were victims in their lives and, and many things didn't work. And they, they, didn't, they even have physical or psychological or some sort of problem where they're really short or they bite people or they have a hormone treatment problem. The, the, everything I just mentioned are true stories about Barcelona players. You need and to then, watch Ted Lasso like yesterday. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I, 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 I'm, I'm up to date with it. I love oh, it. Oh, thank God. Oh, yes. Okay. So can you put it in terms of Ted Lasso? Does it yeah, work? Ted, it, like Ted Lasso is a beautiful story of something that would, have, that would never happen, which is <laughs> like if you hire someone with that ideology and, and systemic patterns into your team, the team would have had destroyed him. It's beautiful to watch because he seems so innocent that he gets his way by being pretty much dumb and very pure hearted. That doesn't happen in life. That, that's really strange. Like it's hard to see because usually the system would have kicked him out immediately, which is what I was building the example of Real Madrid and Barcelona because you guys know Slatan, right? Zlatan Ibrahimovic? No, I don't. Of course you do. You've seen him everywhere. Like no. he was a star for the LA Galaxy for the last three Dude, years. Even in LA, the LA Galaxy aren't popular. It's like, this it, it, is not. Sony's I mean, going like, oh, come on, boys, really? I, I mean, okay. I barely know what like LeBron James looks like. I'm such a bad <laughs> sports person. <laughs> okay, so I'll explain. Zlatan Ibrahimovic is a Swedish player who's way too tall for soccer, but he's really good. But he's really good in a very interesting way. Like he shines doing massive things that no one would have ever thought of. And then at the same time, he can play five games without doing anything. But he believes, like he has a lot of mom. He believes that he, like he, his value is his, his weight in gold, literally. We're talking about a guy that renounced the Swedish uh, national team like five times and they asked him to come back and they're like, okay, I'll come back. And then in the last world cup in 2018, um, I think that was the year of the last world cup, the Swedish, uh, the, the Swedish coach for the national team didn't, didn't call him in, didn't ask him to come to the world cup uh, because of his arrogance, obviously. And Slatan Ibrahimovic already had an ad made in case they didn't ask him to go to the World Cup. <laughs> and as soon as the broadcast where the coach was saying, these are the plays for the World Cup, and he didn't mention his name, as soon as it was over, a, a huge ad of Zlatan Ibrahimovic came, came live on TV of him sitting with a scepter and a, and a, in a throne with a crown in a boss that said Zlatan in huge letters on the side. And he just looked at the camera and said... The World Cup is for men. I'm a Zlatan. Oh, my God. This is the type of guy we're talking about. Imagine what happened when they hired him to play for Barcelona. He sucked. Not only did he suck, uh, even though he he was getting millions of euros paid, they benched him. Because he wasn't compatible with the system. He got in the way of how the team worked because the truth about how he acts is so different that no matter how good of a soccer player he was, he was getting in the way instead of becoming part of the team. Hmm. Now, um, 
that's that's an example of why it rarely works when you take someone who doesn't have like a systemic loyalty or pattern that applies perfectly for the job that you're looking for. Because then people just reenact their system wherever they go. Like this person that we're talking about, the older sibling that became like the father because the father passed away and he was extremely dominant. He's going to be like that in his workplace. He's going to be like that with his children. He's going to be like that with his, with his friends. He's going to change everywhere. And this changes happen in a subtle way most of the times. Unless it's like a death and someone steps up, it usually happens very slowly. Now, um, after, after understanding that your system has certain truths that in order to belong to the system and carry on feeling like you're part of the family, you will try to reenact in your own life, even if it destroys your personal life, your results, and your relationships. Then there's... The other thing, which is the people that carry the, the we, we say people that carry the symptom, which is people that like this older sibling that are willing to somehow sacrifice part of their lives in order to kind of save the system. Um, this is really common, for example, when I notice that um, within my system, men are horrible. And everybody mistreats my mom and, and I'm the daughter within that system. I might try and become my mom's emotional provider and sacrifice so that my mom is okay. And my siblings have, have a functioning mom for them. And, and then by sacrificing myself through that, now I do not have a mother. I do not know how to surrender. I do not know how to ask for support. I only know how to be alone and care for the people around me. And everybody will resent me for being like that. And I will be extremely confused because I feel like all I'm doing is giving myself fully to everyone around me. And somehow they resent me for it. Because you, the, and the reason they hate you for it is because when you, when you, sacrifice yourself in ways like that, you're actually breaking the rules of love. And what I mean by the rules of love is, I'm your sibling. If I support you, it's supposed to be as a sibling. If I love you, it's supposed to be as a sibling. If I confront you, it's supposed to be at the same level as a sibling. But if I sacrificed myself somehow to become my parents' parent, uh, which is being paternalized, we'll explain that uh, in a minute, um, uh, or or because I became uh, like the the equivalent of the mom or the father, I will start trying to love, care, support, and challenge the people around me from a different place. And even though people don't, most people don't know the rules of systemic psychology, they follow them to a T. So what happens is people start feeling resentment, even though they're taking your money, your advice, your love, everything, they're resenting you because you're not loving them from the level that you were born to love them. You're loving them as a parent and you're not my parent. And even though you're giving me education and, pu and pushing me through life, I hate you for treating me like a kid when we're the same, we're from the same generation. And even your mom and your dad might even resent you for this. Your whole system can treat you like shit because you sacrifice yourself and place yourself in a place within the system that's not your place and that's disrespectful for everyone within the system even though you were only trying to save everyone around you does that make sense yeah it's so it's also so interesting because like you know it's talking about all the different structures you're kind of born into when you talk to people about it you know people can kind of pretend like yeah i'm an, I'm an american but that doesn't really affect me and yeah i'm a man but i don't really i, I don't really you know, the ways are what you're supposed to be, man. I didn't really like uh, absorb those messages, whatever. You can try to pretend all those things, but you can never, the one about your family structure is always so 
obvious and clearly real. Like anytime, especially after like learning about this, I've ever kind of learned about anyone like, what was growing up like for you? What were your parents like? What was your sibling like? When I hear about that, immediately I'm like, yep, you make so much more sense now. It just, it is clearly the most profound of all the structures that reveal so much about who people are. And it's funny, it's taken me this long to understand it because now truly I, I ask people about their family life and within 10 minutes i have so much more empathy for the actions yeah. i see them doing with within 10 minutes they make sense they make sense you go like oh now i understand your existence yes totally <laughs> 10 years yeah. of things i've done that have annoyed me i'm now like oh i get it now Inflammatic. Like, no we call that compassion yeah that's compassion. true <laughs> yeah, yeah. what is this compassion. word my robot brain doesn't know what yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I've, I've written down, I just want to make sure that we hit all, all of these, uh, the different type of systemic patterns or, or uh, loyalties. And I, I let me know. We if haven't I'm really started it. with loyalties, but go for them. Okay. Well, the, the don't outshine, like the one that dims their light. Did we, did oh, we well, well, of... well, we'll get into those when we, when we go into, into the actual loyalties. Like I wanted people to understand first the, the sacrifice of the movement. I, re- I rarely try to break it down so much, but given that this is going to be recorded and that people can hear it as a reference, I want to give them like yeah, every level it. of it. Fill, fill, fill this balloon up, baby. Let's do it. Perfect. So the, the, what we're talking there is about the sacrifice. And for example, my sister sacrificed within my system. So my parents didn't really have a really close connection to their, their dads, both my mom and my dad. My dad stopped seeing his father when he was like six. I never saw him again until he was like 16. So for those really important years, he never saw his dad. And all he heard was that he was horrible. And on the other side, my mom comes from a northern uh, Spanish family that were very misogynistic, according to her, and that never paid attention to her. And she had two brothers, no sisters. She was the only girl. And they never paid attention to her. And that's her story. So both my parents had this huge need for masculine connection. So my sister was born first. I'm pretty sure my parents started talking to each other when they met and they were like, I never felt close to my dad and I'm really frustrated about it. And then the other one went, Oh my God, me too. I love you. Let's get married. But um, <laughs> but what, what I want to say is as soon as they came together, they had my sister. My sister was one of the most beautiful babies you've ever seen. Like my parents got stopped on the street constantly to ask them if they could take pictures of my sister, have their, have her in an ad, things like that. She was the most beautiful baby ever. But then two years later, little Rodrigo came and As soon as I was born, my sister started subconsciously feeling that my parents had a larger need for a masculine kid than a feminine kid. And she started becoming a problem ever since that instant. And we, as a family, like from within the system, and this is an important distinction to make, within the system, all we thought was that that my sister was a problem child that she would lie a lot and get herself in trouble constantly and get kicked out of school, like the, all those things. And we just, we just made sense of it that way. But the truth is that my dad, my mom and me could get along beautifully because of my sister, but it took us a long time to understand it. So 
after a while, when I started studying systemic psychology, I remember when one of my teachers told me, um, oh, you're paternalizado, which is one of the loyalties that we're going to talk about. And he said, you're your parents' parent. You act like your parents' parent. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And they said, well, yeah, you're, I mean, you're still young. I was, uh, I was like 20, 25 at the time, uh, or maybe 24. And, and they told me, why do you still live with your parents? Uh, even though if you're not married in Latin America and you're 20 something, it's really normal to still live with your parents. But um, they said, why are you still there? And I said, because it's comfortable. I like it. And they told me, yeah, but you make more money than your dad, which was true at that point. And, and they said, if you make enough money, why, are you, why aren't you moving out? And I said, I don't know. We just get along beautifully. And they asked me, how many freedoms do you have in your house? And I said, what do you mean by freedoms? Yeah, what can you do? And I said, oh, whatever I want. Like my girlfriend can stay with me in my room. Uh, I pay for half of the things. I pay for half of the maid. So like, and they told me exactly, you're more like roomies. And that's why you're so comfortable because you've never allowed your parents to be an authority figure because you became what they needed. You're their parent. And I said, you're stupid. Like you don't know us, you have no idea. And then like God was trying to send me a message for me to wake up. The very next morning I woke up and I listened to my parents arguing in the kitchen and my parents never argue. So, so it was weird. So I went into the kitchen and both my mom and my dad were holding big frames with pictures of, of, of their fathers arguing who I looked more like. <laughs> And I was like, I just looked into the heavens and said, got it. Like, <laughs> that's enough. <laughs> and then I started looking back in, into our life as a system and as a family. And I realized that every time I made a mistake in my life, my sister, the very next day or a few days later, would make a way larger mistake so that my parents forgot about my mistake and they still had their father figure. Like, if, if I had a a uh, bad year in school, my sister would flunk a uh, year. Um, like the, the worst thing I did growing up was I totaled my brand new car and a week later, my sister got pregnant. Like yeah. it was such an obvious commitment to, I will never let you be seen as a failure. And she wasn't doing consciously and she hated it. And she, she kind of hated me for it too. She kept saying things like, I feel like you stole my life. I, I feel like you took my parents away from me. And I didn't understand what the hell she meant, but it was her sacrifice that was making her feel like that because she sacrificed for me to shine and my parents to have the father figure that they needed. And in the instant I realized this and I started removing myself from that place, my family hated me. My sister hated me. My parents hated me. My mom, my mom who always said that I was the reason for her living and that I was her gift to the world. Like I'm, if you listen to these things, honestly, I'm functional by a miracle. That's why I always say that. Um, she kept saying things like, you're the reason why I'm alive and things like that. And she switched from that to he's the son of the devil. He's the worst thing that ever happened to me. I even had to fire her from one of my companies. It, it was ridiculous. But as soon as I removed myself from the equation, my parents finally consolidated their marriage as two people that are supposed to be alone instead of having me in the middle of that relationship all of the time, solving all of their problems. And suddenly my dad became the most masculine version of him I've ever seen. He started telling me off at 30 when he didn't for all of my 20s and teenage years. And 
at the same time, he tripled his income in a few months. And he went from the representative of a Japanese company in Mexico to the president of a Japanese transnational in all of Latin America. As soon as I removed myself, the system readjusted. And since there was not me as the as a masculine leader that the system needed my dad had to rise up to the occasion and take his place and when he did he became the king of the house and now he like protects and loves my mom like crazy but now he puts his foot down for certain things and and he protects us in very specific ways and and now he has like the money the power and the people around him to create whatever he wants and that would have never been possible had i still been standing at that place getting in his way is there a way to physically remove yourself but still be there kind of mentally? Like I feel like I've seen that in families where it's like yeah, they don't live in the same place anymore, but the pattern is still that did, that didn't fix it entirely. I think that yeah, that's most of the time. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. That's why I was giving the example of you can move to Thailand and you'll just repeat the same thing. Right, right. If you don't break if, if I hadn't break the pattern, what would have happened is I would have moved to Japan and I would have looked for a group of people that treated me like daddy. And, and I, uh, that adored me like a father figure and that, that I could live with and connect with and start solving their lives the way I was solving my family's life. And then my family would have looked for another masculine figure to start worshiping that figure because uh, you remove yourself from that equation. But the system stands. Does that happen in relationships as well? Like, like someone would leave their system and then go and date someone that they have to be like their mother? Or is that something else? I think that probably happens a ton. <laughs> Sony just right? said, Ro would have started a cult in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> Samurai cult. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Ross. Do I need to say it again? No, no, no. I, 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 I just <laughs> want to ask, like, what do you mean specifically? Oh, like, like when someone, yeah, I've seen a lot of relationships where it's like the guy is a complete mess and the girl is like taking care of him. And it's like, like I was watching the Kurt Cobain level documentary montage of heck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it's, it a, it's a level two relationship. Like there was a girl, like all Kurt Cobain did was like stay on our couch and like watch TV and then record stuff. And she would like go and work and make him dinner and all this stuff. But it was just like she was kind of momming him, you know, becoming yeah. his mother. Yeah, that's that's exactly how it works. It's. The, the way we mentioned this before, but to make it really precise, because this is an, an interesting point, is I can only function with people with similar systemic patterns or loyalties, and then we recreate our patterns within our system, with a new system. So, for example, if I... If I'm a phlegmatic fake fire who started acting like the father figure within the system, then I'm going to marry someone who also had this struggling relationship with dad and I will replace the dad and become exactly that. This is what happens when people start fighting with their in-laws. When, when people start fighting with their in-laws is because they're trying to take the place in this person's life that, the, that their parents had. So your mom used to control you, but hey, you chose another controlling woman with a very similar background and her systemic loyalties. So I believe that loving you is controlling you and I'm trying to control you and love you because this is the way I do it, the way I learned how to do it. But your mom hates me for it and I don't understand why. She's a witch. There is something wrong with her. And the truth is that they're both fighting for the same spot with the son. Or the makes, daughter. Yeah, the classic joke is like everyone hates their mother-in-law, right? That's like, it's yeah. what you say. And it's always like, why? Why? I was always thinking like, why is it specifically this mother of the per person you're dating? Are you just like, does it seem to be a constant 
like theme that people seem to hate. And it's because systemically you are in competition with the person. Exactly. Makes total exactly. sense. Exactly. You're fighting for the same spot. And even systemic psychologists, uh, when they're, when they're giving like systemic therapy to people, they usually say things like, then why did you look for a husband when you're already married? Hmm. And people go like, what, what do you mean? And they go like, yeah, you're married to your dad. That spot is taken. Is that so what you called triangulado or something? No, that's no, no, no. We'll, we'll go into triangulado in a bit. Okay. Like here, we're just trying to explain where people take their patterns into the system. Like, for example, I have an amazing relationship with my in-laws and my wife has an amazing relationship with my parents. Why? Because it was extremely clear in not bringing someone to the system that had a similar disorder as we did, because then that would actually kind of seduce us back into into the dark side of the system so i brought someone in that for the first for the first few lunches that that my 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 wife who was my girlfriend back then met my family my especially my mom and my sister would look at my, at my future wife like we don't know what you are like we it's not that we don't like you or or, or are angry at you not at all we, we we like you we just don't understand what you are because it was from such a different system with such a different pattern and such different pains that they, they didn't even know how to talk to her. And I was like, yes, I love this. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Is that good advice in general to find a partner who doesn't necessarily replicate your familiar patterns or that's fantastic advice the problem is most people are not aware of their systemic pattern enough as to choose someone from outside of it because they they can rarely see them how are you able to be attractive to somebody or attracted to somebody yeah they have to have a little bit of it right they've got to have something because like it's our ego that causes attraction and if we're drawn to our systemic loyalties it's like am i just going to choose someone that i'm like on paper you're exactly what i need but i'm not drawn to you whatsoever Well, there we need to make a distinction because what you guys are saying is true and it's something that I teach in the workshops, but it's when it's purely psychological and based on your beliefs, yes, you need some of your poison to feel attracted to people, but that's only referring to the process through which human beings fall in love and the chemistry of the body and how we experience desire. That is true. But when it's systemic, no, systemic, systemic psychology does not create sexual attraction. It creates comfort within the understanding of the relationship, but it does not create sexual attraction. Hmm. Good does that make sense? sense. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. just, as I've been learning this stuff, my brain goes like, oh, great, Ross. Well, you're going to have to wind up with someone that you're not sexually attracted to, but it's going to be really functional. And I'm like, <laughs> that sounds kind of like hell. It's like, what a, what a weird ultimatum. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I want I, I, there's so much to cover and I want to make sure that that we actually get it all in in this episode. Yeah. So keep going, Rodrigo. So I actually wanted to open the space if you want, Brian, to explain a little bit what sacrifice you notice you created systemically in your system. Um, okay. <laughs> Sorry for putting you on the spot all the time about this, but it's it's such a good example. Um, yeah, I mean, so I, you know, after going through BYB, I, 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 recognized that I had a very interesting systemic loyalty and the patterns I was creating from really the relationship that my sister had with our whole family. I'm I'm sure with my mom and my dad too, but my sister having a disability, having cerebral palsy and being such a central figure in our family sort of gave me these, I, I started noticing these patterns in my life where I was like 
yearning to be perfect in in huge and and um, be as opposite as I could of someone with a disability to expand and be amazing in every way. And at the same time, I was sabotaging myself every time I got past a certain level. And it was like this weird thing where I was like, why am I like, I'm pulling myself up and down at the same time. And it was like so frustrating. And it then I feel sort of, like that. It was so frustrating because I was like, I couldn't, and people would like notice it in me and I couldn't understand it. And I came to this like interesting like revelation where I was like, oh, it's that's exactly what it was with my sister, which is like I from a kid, I remember even like asking my mom, I was like, were you happy you had me? Like, do you need me to be perfect? Because mm. like Amy was like this, like, so you, I, you're probably happy I can walk, right? Like things like that. And she was always handled it great. And she was like, I love you both. But in my head, I was like, okay, well, they had this kid that couldn't do anything that a normal standard kid could do. So I need to then do all those things perfectly, whether it was be outgoing or get perfect grades or, you know, be athletic or be on stage, whatever that was. At the same time, I also felt a lot of guilt to do that because I was like, well, if she can't do these things, what makes you think you deserve to do these things, Brian? And so I literally her, her when I did my psycho magic thing, I really used her wheelchair as a as an object that had been both, I called it both a magnet and a repellent in my life where I had to be like, I have to be as far away from this, but also how dare you try to be as far away from the idea of being, you know, um, you are, you don't deserve to be anything but as contained as your sister. And at the same time, you have to be everything but, and I realized this pattern was making me try to be, you know, I would, in my career, I would get to a certain level or I'd overwork myself to then just destroy an opportunity, or I would present myself in these ways that would make me really attractive in romantic relationships and then totally bow out of them. And it would, it would happen in so many different ways. Uh, I was even, I, I even, I've been like a hypochondriac my whole life. And I've always <laughs> been like, oh, you know what I think that is? I think that's me saying like, oh my God, I can't get sick. I can't get sick. Am I sick? I can't be sick. And also me going, but you kind of deserve to be sick. So it's like, I keep like almost, I couldn't understand if I liked it or if I'm trying to like push away from it. So it's like, I kept, and I just, I felt that sort of pattern with everything I did. And it just sort of like one drove me crazy and two just sort of made me bounce back between different types of behavior that would just confuse everyone. This is such a good example. And thank you so much for, for opening it up like that. Sure. Um, but it's such a good example because within that system, given that there's already someone that has a problem and needs attention, creating more trouble or problems seems extremely unfair. So I need to be perfect and I can't get sick because the, the, the sick place is already taken in the system and it would just be selfish of me to become that. So we start getting really concerned about that. And then I have to be perfect. But then at the same time, when I start being perfect and I start really creating things, this is just bragging. Like, this is just, look at me, I'm healthy and fine and I can do whatever I want. And this is just unfair to my system. So I don't deserve either the success or the problems. I need to stay in that gray area in the middle one that where I'm talented enough and good enough, but not really blowing up in any way and not really creating problems in any way. That's, that's becoming the sacrifice within the system. And even though it seems extremely nice to do something like that, people resent you for it. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because when you talk to, to your siblings, your family about it, usually they go like, yeah, we've seen you holding back and we hate it. 
And yeah, we've noticed that you never ask for a support, like you don't care about us. So even though super, superficial systemic patterns seem nice, in the end, you're actually validating what doesn't work about the system and, and, and making the other people function properly as you carry the symptom. It's the same thing with, al- with alcohol and drugs that like, when, when we were when we were in human forum doing the the social clinic we worked with a lot of families of people that were deep within addiction and haven't been able to to get rid of it and we decided what if we tried to treat them by never seeing them and just working with the systemic pattern within the family so that doesn't the, the, so that the family stops needing uh, someone to carry the symptom and we started working with 10 families and seven of the families. We never met the people that were drinking or using. And seven out of the 10 stopped using completely. That's as soon As soon as the family stopped, stopped needing someone to carry the symptom, which would have been the, the exact same thing as someone working with my family so that we didn't need my sister to be a problem so that I seemed perfect for my parents. And as soon as my parents stopped needing that and I stopped acting that, my sister would have stopped creating the trouble that she was creating for herself in order to sacrifice for everyone else in the system to get along beautifully. I mean, that should be taught everywhere. That is incredible that that people stop drinking when they didn't have the need to fill that role. That is really interesting. Whenever what's, I hear that story, I want that like published somewhere and, and widely spread. And here's the worst part. Uh, the world wasn't ready for it. Uh, like when we, we brought the results to many rehab centers and all that, but the economics of it didn't make sense. You cannot make as much money seeing a family twice a week for a month than having someone institutionalized for six months paying 10 grand a month right. or 20 grand a month. Capitalism, baby. Yes. So uh, yeah, people people weren't willing to just shift the system. No. Uh, now, uh, once we understand how the sacrifice works and, and how the system balances out and all of that, now we can start going into systemic laws. And, and this is where systemic loyalties actually stem from. Um, there are certain things within systemic psychology that you can never do for other people and that you can never allow anyone to do for you. So let, let me explain a little bit of what, what this means. Systemic psychology is always looking for fairness and balance. Systems always try to balance out. So how do we create relationships and families where we are consciously looking for the balance instead of waiting for the system to readjust in a subconscious way that can destroy all of us, especially because systemic loyalties usually are carried on through generations. Like, According to systemic psychology, at least six generations can carry a loyalty and and a pattern if no one does their work within that system to go like, guys, we're doing this. In systemic psychology, what we say is whatever you're not paying attention to starts getting sicker and sicker. Whatever you just start looking at and paying attention to heals itself automatically just by you addressing it and paying attention to it. Now, some of the laws are things like this we tend to believe that love is everything and love will set us free and love can fix everything. And systemic psychology goes like, no, Uh, ordered love can solve everything, but not disordered love. When you, when you love out of structure and in ways that you're not supposed to love and give, you can actually destroy way more than you can help. So in systemic psychology, we say that there's three things that can never be paid. Do you guys remember that? The unpayable debts. 
Yes, but what are the three things that that are like the core of unpayable debts? Things that you'll never be able to pay. Now, before we we jump into them, what we mean by unpayable debts is within relationship when we love and give in a certain way uh, to someone that we shouldn't have done that for. Now that person feels a debt to the other human being that they can never, they will never be able to repay. And they'll even resent the person who gave them all of that because uh, it's, it feels like you did it because you wanted to brag or oppress me or manipulate me or control me. So having said that, what are they, Russ? So I'm, yeah, I'm going to give Ross. credit to Sonny because I, I, I uh, he, he mentioned them in the comments, gifting someone a career uh, adoption and then uh is education the same thing as gifting someone a career or is that the third one yes it is but you're going straight into loyalties and not into the three main things so let, let me explain this really quick according to systemic psychology there's three specific things that no matter what type of relationship you're in you'll never be able to pay and these are the only places where you can take from someone and it's fair and it's okay to take from them so number one having been born, having people decided that they were going to give you your life and love you and protect you for all of your childhood because uh, they were your parents. So that's a really unfair situation. You're getting their house, their money, their education, their love, their caring, everything, and you're not giving anything in return, but probably laughter and getting good grades. Uh, so and, and you can even be a brat about it and you won't lose them. That's an unfair relationship, but it's balanced. And the reason it's balanced is because you didn't ask to come. They asked, they wanted to bring you. So, hey, you brought me, you deal with me. That's the only place where that's fair. Then second thing, when someone saves your life, there's nothing you can do in order to repay someone who saved your life. That's why we still see doctors as like magical shamans that just know things that we don't. Uh, we're willing to take answers from doctors that we wouldn't take from a mechanic. I, I tell this to people all the time. This is how sacred we see them. I tell this to people all the time. Would you, <laughs> I use this as an example in a workshop a couple of days ago, but um, if you took your car to the mechanic because something's failing with the car and the mechanic told you something like, well, this is what's going to happen. Um, I'm the type of mechanic that doesn't really tell you what's wrong with your car. So you're going to drive your car and, and I'm going to talk to you a couple of times a week for the next 10 years. I'm going to ask you questions about what you think is wrong with the car and you're going to start fixing it yourself and figuring it out yourself. And maybe in 10 years, your car will work again. Would you allow that from a mechanic ever? No. <laughs> no, never. But hey, we allow it from our mental health specialists. Um, so we we see yeah. them as, as such sacred people that we're willing to go like, okay, maybe you don't even need to tell me what's wrong with me. Can you just tell me that I'm fine? Uh, and we're willing to go in that direction because saving a life is such an unpayable thing. And then the third thing, what is it? When a teacher teaches you something, that changes your life in the exact in the exact time when you needed to learn that lesson for the rest of your life. That's something that you can't pay either. Yeah, Lorraine, I got that in the chat. 
Oh, nice. Well done, Lorena. So the, according to systemic psychology, those are like the three laws. Uh, and then from that, we start understanding the structures from which you can do certain things and the structures from which you don't. And there are certain things, for for example, with a partner, like with, with a romantic partner, with your significant other that you're never supposed to do. Like, as Ross was saying, paying for, the edu- for their education and giving them a career. Why should you never do that? Because what the hell can that human being do in order to repay you for giving them a career and a livelihood? They would need to give you like 20% of all the money they make for the rest of their lives because that career was only possible because of what you can give them. What kind of a spouse do I need to be to you to repay the fact that you gave me an education, that you gave me a career and trained my mind? And the funny thing is when you do it, when you give something to someone that was not your responsibility to give, it's usually the one who received that will destroy the relationship. Because they start living within this anxiety of now who do I need to become and how do I need to be in order to be good enough for what this person has given me? And then that starts turning in their head into, I think they did it to manipulate me. I think they did it to control me. I think they did it so that I'm not free and that I owe owe this to them for the rest of my life. And they end up cheating or being extremely aggressive or, or just running away somehow because they feel like they're in a relationship with Bank of America and they owe them $10 million and they will never be able to create that amount of money to repay them back. Is this only romantic partnerships or is that friendships as well? In friendships, it's not supposed to be a problem as long as you create a structure in which they pay you back with interest. Hmm. Because then it becomes fair. But when it's a romantic relationship and and the funds are kind of shared, uh, then that person won't pay you back. And it would even be be seen as strange to now here's your money back. Some people try and do that, but then the person who overgave won't be able to receive it because of their own systemic loyalty and who they believe they need to become. And they would be offended at the other person trying to pay them back. And there goes the relationship. Yeah, it makes total sense. Whereas, why are you paying me? Sorry, sorry. It's like, why are you paying me back? Are you leaving me? Why are you paying me back? Do you do like, are you planning to destroy this relationship now? That's how people usually react. Sorry, Brian. I was just saying, like, but with parents, if they have to pay for something or you don't have any money, here you go, all those things. That's again, the only kind of totally acceptable person from because once again, we they brought us into this world. So we will accept that money from them that way. Exactly. And then what what Ballinger started doing for the last few decades in his life, he sadly passed away a couple of years ago, but um, what he started studying and writing about was the like the specific rules that if we don't follow, we can distinguish the pattern that someone's following. So here's where we dive into like actual systemic loyalties. Um, I'll give you one example. The, uh, the, they, they, usually, they usually call this a solar system pa- uh, loyalty. Uh, and, and what it is, is when we have someone within a system that's so massively successful and so socially uh, uh, acknowledged by everyone as an amazing human being, then that system already has a son. Yes, Sonny, you're exactly in a system like that. We went through it. And... When we have someone that we already decided that, that he or she is the son, then no one else can shine for two generations. Uh, 
like the children of, of that of that person and the grandchildren of that person do not have permission to outshine the sun and your success will be seen as disrespect to the system no matter if you're creating amazing things in your life so these patterns are so mind-blowingly accurate that for years I've been able to diagnose people just by looking at what they're struggling with. So I always use this example. I remember this one guy and I asked for his permission to share this in Mexico City. This tall, handsome, intelligent, well-educated guy. And I was looking at him and he was deeply depressed talking about he had he had failed at everything he he had tried every career he had tried every path and he had failed at everything miserably and his relationships were falling apart and even his health was failing and nothing in his life and nothing in his way of being gave me enough information as to explain why he felt like this. And then I remember in my, in my frustration, because I was just learning systemic psychology when I diagnosed him, I remember I looked at him and I said, kiddingly, honestly, I said, so was your grandfather the president or a bullfighter or the most famous person doing what? And he stopped crying that instant and all confused, put his head up and he said, do you know me? And I said, no, why? And his grandfather was this really important politician and ambassador that Mexico had all over the world and was extremely acknowledged. And then I, I just asked him, uh, are, there, are there women in your mom's generation? Because it was from the, mom or from the mother's side. Are there, are there a lot of women in your mom's generation and in your generation? And he said, yes. And I said, are they all marrying really weak men, really weak, broken men? And, and he said, yeah. How do you know that? And I said, because that's a systemic loyalty. No women can bring a man that will outshine the son of the system and no man from the system can outshine him or, or be successful at anything because that would be disrespectful to the system and everyone will hate you for it. And the only people I know that have been able to break through something like this is like the example that I used in BYB too. Miguel Bosé, the Spanish singer, had to even change his last name in order to be successful at something without, uh, without belonging to the system that he came from because his father was an amazing bull fighter in Spain and he wanted to not belong to that system. I just watched The Godfather the other day and I was just thinking about when yeah. Pacino takes over, but Marlon Brando had to die before that really, maybe the train. Cause I was thinking about like, um, there are some times where it's like a famous actor will have a son who then becomes a really famous actor. You see it with musicians too. What is happening to then to let that transfer ha how, cause then the son is kind of transferring uh, over the sun SUN, the center of the solar system is transferring to the next generation. What do they have to go through to make that work? Well, it's, it's hard to find someone who really had like a massively successful uh, parent and they became more successful than them. Usually when we see these people that, that oh, he's the son of, they, they usually were like, if the son or the daughter become massive, usually their parents were like, like B-series actors and then they became A-listers. Which one do you think is right. on top in the Kirk Michael Douglas conundrum, we'll call it? Because Kirk Douglas was Spartacus. He was huge at the time. And Michael Douglas, I think, was pretty big as well, right? Yeah. Well, I don't know any of them. I, I don't know any of them, but what I can tell you is the only way in which they could be as successful as someone before is because, one, the system wasn't solar and their success was never seen as the most important thing within the system. 
or they actually did some work in order to free themselves from the systemic loyalty. Right. I'm guessing right. it's the first one. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, I can't imagine Kirk and Michael Douglas sitting in therapy, but um, interesting. Okay, cool. Um, Going to other pad to other loyalties. Yes. Well, actually, yeah, another. Lorena asked a question, and I'm guessing this is regarding the one that we just kind of came from, uh, talking about the unpayable debts. Uh, what about siblings? Does that apply to siblings in terms of like paying for their education? Or would that kind of put you into the same thing that we were talking about earlier of like you're being their parent? You're being their parent and they'll resent you for it unless you make a way for them to pay you back with interest. Got it. So it follows the same thing as, as friendships with siblings. Yeah, Got because it. you're at the same level. So it's fine. As long as you're being fair about what you give and what you get. Great. Now, so, so, now I know. Yes, you do. And the other really interesting thing is uh, the word, we've said this before in the podcast, but the word for couple in Spanish means even. Because relationships are supposed to be even. So every time you're building a relationship, especially a romantic one, you need to be especially aware of I gave and then I wait for the other person to give. And then the other person gives and waits so that I can give again. And we're always competing to now I brought something. Now you brought something. Now I brought something. And many times it's not like literally a gift or something that you do specifically, specifically for the other person, but more for the relationship. And like, I, I just bought us this. I just bought us a trip somewhere. I just, I, I just figured out how we can get a better house for both of us. You're giving to the relationship, but then you need to wait and allow the other person to give because if you overgive you will create an unpayable debt and the person who received is gonna go nuts at you and treat you like you're a horrible human being and this is why keep people keep saying but i gave them everything why did they leave me and i always tell them because you gave them everything and that creates such a debt that people start getting anxious. They don't understand what's happening but they start getting anxious they start feeling like you're abusing them somehow and they run away from you yeah, it makes total sense. You said that in BYB, one of the worst things you can do as a person is give, but don't receive. And mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, I, I've thought of friendships I've had where people have like over given to me and don't let me give back. And I get so frustrated and I'm like, and I got, I felt so guilty feeling frustrated because I'm like, I'm receiving so much. What the hell's wrong with me? But it's like, mm -hmm. I don't feel respected that I can give back or something. It's like, I, I need to be able to do that and take that power in my own hands. And like you said, kind of go back and forth with it. And that's why it was important to break your loyalty because if not giving what you can give, being a smart, talented, amazing human being as you are, my friend, because you are, then you would start shining so much that it would be unfair mm -hmm. for your system. Mm -hmm. Wow. Now, what other loyalties do we get to talk about, Russ? Uh, the don't outshine loyalty, which uh, that it's similar to the solar system it's, but it's similar to the like solar but just just to just to explain it um there's a lot of people that have a systemic loyalty which is what it's part of the sacrifice it's a little bit what my sister did like my sister was clearly dimming her light not to outshine who she felt was necessary for the system mm 
So if I notice that my parents adore my sibling and they seem to need my sibling so much, I'm, I'm more than willing subconsciously to dim my light and become less talented, less smart and less productive than I could have been just for my system to have what they needed because of their problems and emotional unbalances. And then that person will go everywhere and dim their light not to hurt anyone. And they will start creating evidence of certain places where they forgot to dim their light and they were shining like crazy and someone paid the price. And they're going to gather those evidence like their anecdotes of how horrible it is to be them and to and to outshine people and how they can hurt them and destroy them. Yeah, I, I know a pair of siblings where it's sort of similar to what you said, where it's older child, golden child, younger child was the problem child. And the problem child always talks about the golden. They're, they're so frustrated that the family loves this one, yet they're doing things that is they're bringing problems to themselves with their own behavior. And the golden child is always talking about how frustrating it is to have this problem child, but they're not really helping the problem child become no. the best version of themselves. So <laughs> they're, not like, even, they're not even helping the problem child. They're using the problem child to allow everyone else within the system to get, out, to get along beautifully. Yes, yes. Yep. And... And the, the other thing I wanted to mention about that is even as we, even as someone else is sacrificing, we can still have carry the pattern of, of, of the light. So to give you my example, yes, my sister was dimming her light when it had to do with her intelligence or her success, where everything so that my parents could have me. But that doesn't mean that I wasn't creating my own loyalty, believing that who I was born to be was always going to make someone else pay the price. I didn't feel like I had to dim my light, but I felt like my light was always going to hurt someone because I was clearly hurting my sister. And then I realized years later that this was also a pattern that was carried out in both my parents' families. Like my dad outshone his brothers. Uh, one of my sister's siblings outshone, outshined the other one. And like it, it, it happened constantly and it was part of the system. So I, I took it with me for the rest of my life. And in my first two jobs, they fired my boss and gave me his position after a few months of working in the company. And, and I was like, I felt so guilty. I felt so bad, but it was part of my understanding and systemic loyalty in life, uh, being who I was for my parents and shining so bright for them to feel like they were living their lives, their lives through me a little bit and getting what they didn't get from their parents meant my sister was paying a price. So every time I was trying to become that one person who, I, who was outshining everyone with his talent, I was always looking around wondering who I was going to hurt and destroy. Mm. And until I broke through that and I had a really powerful conversation with my sister saying, can we agree that you did this and I've been doing this? And that brought us together like crazy. She stopped doing it. And for the first time in my life, I can shine all I want without, without hurting anyone or thinking that I'm, that I'm going to take something away from someone. Awesome. Did we go over paternalized already? We, we touched no. on it a little bit. We yeah. touched on it a little bit, but these are two of the most important patterns. Oh, and there's another one that's really important, the girlfriend. Well, I'll go there. But the first one is um, what I did. When your parents uh, like needed a parent and who wasn't there for them, and it's a very specific one, it's very easy for you, especially if you're the first one arriving to the family of the right gender that was missing for your parents to become paternalized. Becoming paternalized is becoming your parents' parent. They're still together. They're still emotionally a couple, but you're the one protecting them instead of them protecting you. The problem is that it doesn't seem like that. It just seems like, 
Oh my God, you're such a mature human being. You grew up so fast. You have an old soul. You're so wise. And, and you, you, they make the child feel like they're growing up in a beautiful way and they have gifts and talents to like give away to other people because they have so many. Uh, but in fact, what you're doing is you're making them a small adult that, that that's not going to go through life through the stages that they need to go through because they need to provide the emotional support of a parent to their parents. And, and then the parents will never grow and they will act like as children because if, you, if you're the adult, they can act like children. And then everywhere you go, you're going to try to become the number one in the structure and you'll never know how to have mentors or people that protect you and, and teach you and take you in the way because actually allowing someone else to be stronger than you or even your mentor is a, is a disrespect to your system where you're supposed to be the main one. Mm. Oh man, I had something that I wanted to add to that and then it just totally escaped me. Um, <laughs> anyway. Um, well, after the yeah. paternalized, we have the triangulado, the triangled. Yes. And the triangled is when instead of becoming paternalized and becoming your parents' parent, you just become the emotional substitute for one of them. And your parents can still be together. Like they don't even need to have a divorce. It, like sometimes when they get a divorce, it's easier for one of the children to become this. But even when they're together, it's, it can still happen. And it's really common, for example, when either mom or dad didn't feel really valued in their own system. So they end up marrying someone who doesn't really value them either, or, or acts like they don't value them because of their own beliefs and masks. And then one of the kids, because being a kid makes you like safe for mom or for dad at the beginning, like you're theirs and you're just a kid. Like they, there can't be any malice in you that they don't know about. So you seem to be completely safe. And then one of the parents starts using the kid as the emotional support that they can't get from other people. And then that person kind of belongs the mom's spouse or the dad's spouse. You get kind of in the middle and you start trying to solve the communication between them and trying to tell him no that's not what he tried to tell you dad please take care of my mom mom please don't be so aggressive towards my dad like all of these things and then what ends up happening is that everybody resents you because now mom and dad can get along beautifully when you're not there because they start feeling like the problem is you and you being the problem allows everyone else in the system to be beautiful with each other and then these people don't know how to destroy that that loyalty to that pattern to that system and then what they do is you bring them into a company and they get in the middle of the partners and you bring them into a play and they get in the middle of the producer and the director you you take them into uh, a team and they get in the middle of the coach and the captain of the team. They, they, they don't know how to function in life without becoming the emotional provider for the most important people within the system. And people love them for doing it at the beginning and completely hate them for doing it in the end. And these people are so confused because all they're doing is the same thing they did in their system. Wow. You said that there was one more that you wanted to get into or did you touch on all of them? No, I have one more. Okay, great. Uh, this is this can happen with mom and son, but it's way more typical between dad and daughter. And Hellinger had this really like poetic ways of explaining his his loyalties, but uh, this is daddy's little girlfriend. Uh, and, and what he used to say is, this is what happens when dad has an ex-girlfriend stuck in his heart. That's what I meant by the poetic one. But what he would say is, 
if dad really wanted to marry someone else, like he was really in love with someone else. And for some reason, for religious reasons, for economical reasons, because they died, because of a war, whatever it is, uh, when, when dad couldn't marry this person and ended up marrying this other woman who became the mother within the system, the firstborn daughter will start feeling a very specific rejection towards mom and an extreme closeness towards dad. And she will start becoming all the ways of being of the ex-girlfriend. And, and if they ever meet the ex-girlfriend, um, the, the, they're going to start saying things like, I wish you were my mom. I feel like I understand you way better. Like, why, why aren't we a family? I don't understand this. And they will start fighting their own mother and competing against her because they're not acting like the daughter, but like the girlfriend that went away. And daddy loves that. And no one does this consciously, but this is so common. And the most mind-blowing example of this I had, and I had this like a month ago, and I asked for her permission to share this because it was so mind-blowing. I was working with a Mexican woman not long ago, and her whole family family have been students of mine and I really like them. So I was very emotionally invested in working with her. And as we were working, she started explaining her relationship to her dad and to her mom. And it's so confusing to people when you ask them this, but I was like, did your dad have a girlfriend that was really important and that he couldn't marry? And she, like her head just went back and she told me her nickname. She said, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to say it, but she went like, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what is that? That's my ex, like, like my dad's ex-girlfriend nickname. And my mother kept calling me that all the time. Mm-hmm. She kept saying, you're exactly like that. So I'm going to call you like that. And your dad likes you more than me. Like if you were that girl from blah, blah, blah. But the really mind-blowing thing is that not only is she, for you guys to realize how systemic this is and how we look for people to play for the exact same game later on. She, she did that with dad. She was daddy's little girl, girlfriend. This is not sexual, by the way. This is purely emotional. But then she realized a couple of sessions later that she had an ex-boyfriend that loved her dearly. And, and they never made it work because of her relationship with her father and all of that. And that guy ended up marrying someone else, having a daughter, getting a divorce. That daughter hated her mother and was exactly like her. And she met her. So she's both daddy's little girlfriend and some, someone else's girlfriend that got away, whose daughter keeps calling her and saying, I wish you were my mother. Man, how, how did she bring that into her life subconsciously? That is wild. It's because it's the because that, yeah, it, Exactly. Yeah. I mean, she has found the guy that she, yeah, I mean. It, she called yeah, it yeah, in. It's, it's the it's same nuts. thing that Janice said a couple episodes ago. Like if when you said, uh, oh, if you wouldn't have dated them, and she was like, I would have. Like no matter what, like you will find <laughs> yeah, some right. people attract the thing in that is drawn to it. I love this. You story. would have loved, just looked for another identical guy to play the exact same game. Yep. Right, right. And then beyond the parents things, we also have other things. Well, it also has to do with parents, but we have other things like, for example, the adopted pattern, which is also really important. The only thing that makes it fair to be a child abusing your parents, going nuts on them, using their money, their time, their house, their everything is the fact that they decided to bring you. You didn't choose it. They did. But hey, what happens if someone adopts you? 
then that's a problem. According to systemic psychology, if your parents aren't able to, to support you and, and raise you and be with you, the ones in charge of you are your grandparents. If your grandparents aren't there, it's the great grandparents. If the great parents, grandparents aren't there, then it's the great uncles. If the great uncles and, and aunts aren't there, then it's the, the, the uncles and aunts. If they aren't there, then it's the siblings or cousins. And if there's no one in your system and someone else adopt, adopts you, it has to be the state. It has to be like some institution that society is, is, is creating to protect this type of children. That's still fair. But if a random couple adopts you, they're going to give you a level of love, uh, attention, caring, giving that you don't systemically deserve because they didn't bring you. They're choosing to give this to you. And the big problem there is that by choosing you and giving you everything that systemically do you don't deserve, we see in adopted children this very specific anxiety, which is, I didn't deserve this. And what type of a kid, what type of an adult would I need to become in order to repay for everything that I'm receiving? And that's why we see adopted children constantly uh, either being an absolute failure at everything, like trying a million different things. And they're usually savvy, witty, intelligent, smart, street smart. They know how to get around. Like they, 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 know, they know how to connect to people. They should be successful, but they don't even try because nothing they do will ever be enough. So they kind of become like small quitters and failures in everything they do, because why even try? I owe so much. There's nothing I will do that will ever be enough. The other side of that coin is amazing overachievers that create massive success and mind-blowing things that completely change the world and, the, and our understanding of human beings and usually die young trying to do it because they pressure themselves so much, like Steve Jobs like Walt Disney, like it's a, there's a long list of adopted people. And I know that a lot of people don't know that Walt Disney was adopted. Ask anyone in Spain. <laughs> Lorena wants to know if you adopt a kid, do you tell them or do you not? They know, even if you don't tell them, they know. I haven't we met one adopted on kid our, uh, who, on our podcast. Yeah. Yep. It's if you ask them, they always know. Uh, and Here's, here's the thing. I, I do believe that, that, that you get to tell them uh, because when, when you don't tell them in crucial moments, they will use that against you and it will become part of a pattern. Like, so, so you gave me all of that and you didn't even tell me and I needed this information. You did this because you hate me. And it's, it's part of the system of now, how the hell am I supposed to pay you back? And, and here's something that I noticed recently. This is why so many adopted children um, uh, start being like a big problem for their parents until their parents kind of abuse them in a certain way and mistreat them because that makes the relationship fair again. Mm. They're treating you like a stranger that kind of protects you, but kind of hates you. That's fine. You can deal with that. You just couldn't deal with all of their pure love. How do you so break through from that if you're an adopted kid? I mean, is it like every other type of loyalty we're just noticing it is their first step I, I i didn't want to give the full answer to that but but the thing is for for that one give the full answer to it just because it's like that that's 
it, it, it's kind of an easy fix with that one. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, the, I feel the, like if someone's listening to it, I don't want them to come away from this being like, I'm the mess and there's nothing I could do about it. <laughs> it, it yeah. I love when you answered about this fix. So, so go for it. Okay. So this is why when you were asking me if you should tell the children, my answer is yes, because I already told you that in systemic psychology, what what's not seen and addressed gets sicker and sicker. What is seen and addressed starts healing itself. So if you tell them that they're adopted really early on, like as soon as they can understand what that means and you make the adoption as valuable and guess what? Some people are, are Asian, some people are Mexican, some people are Chinese, some people are black and some people are adopted. And, and you just make it that open uh, and it's not a problem and they can confront it all of the time and, and, and like really internalize it and make it part of their identity, then they can value what you're doing for them instead of creating debt. It feels like, oh, I'm adopted and you're giving me this. I'm so thankful. And the fact that you, you can say something like, you shouldn't need to give me these. I'm adopted. Like, like I, I don't even matter that much. And you go like, yeah, but we love you and we chose you. So here you go that actually destroys the pattern completely. And that's why people that know that they were adopted from really early on and even had it in their language and in the way they identify themselves, like, hi, I'm Rodrigo and I was adopted and it's not a problem. Uh, those are people that don't carry the pattern with them because they addressed it really early on. And if you have been carrying it, if you are listening to this and you you are adopted or think you were, no, deep down you were, the, the way to do it is just to go and have the conversation with the parent, right? Go have that conversation it's now. It's that you need to prove to your subconscious that they chose you, that you were not here by chance, that they didn't have to carry you, but they chose you. So like standing in front of them and go like, I know I'm, I'm adopted, right? And then just asking a question like, why did you choose me? And having them tell you something like, well, there were a million kids there, but we saw you and we fell in love with you. That actually makes your subconscious understand like, oh, I, I wasn't a burden. Like they actually chose me. It's kind of similar to what wanting me to be born. And when they tell you, we loved spending this time with you, you actually brought joy and life to this household and we chose you and we're so thankful for you. That actually shifts the whole energy of the situation. It's amazing how, yes, you can do all these years of therapy and it's very helpful, but nothing holds a candle to fixing yourself like one having a conversation with someone deep in your past that you need to have a conversation with and two burning and pissing on something. And if you take BYB, you'll understand what I mean by that. <laughs> we will do a psycho magic episode for sure. We will. Um, is there anything? Two things, I, man. I know Brian has to run Rodrigo. Is there any, any other things that we need to, to Me too. tap into this? Is that it? I mean, do you mean if they want to learn more? Well, if they want to learn more, we should definitely tell them about the Bert Hallinger. I mean, should we bring someone on and see what their systemic pattern we're, is? We're going to do that time? in just a second, but but I want to make sure that we we button up the free version before we go into the. Paper. I I guess the only really important thing about this is yes, if you want to learn more, definitely read Bert Hallinger's books. He has them on sexuality, religion, and it's all systemic. Uh, look for Orders of Love. Uh, I, I don't know if that's the literal translation that, that I'm just making up, but um, that's that's probably his main book it's like three seminars that he gave written all together it's like a big brick of a book but it's mind-blowing um but i guess the most important thing is this if you've been working on yourself for a long time 
if you've been going through your beliefs, your past, and nothing explains a pattern or a loyalty that you're still carrying, stop thinking that it has only to do with you and start looking around in your system and ask yourself these questions. Who benefits from you dimming your light? Who benefits from you becoming the human being that you are? Or who are you trying to protect by creating pain and failure in your life? And when you start understanding yourself, not only as a, an individual with specific problems that you need to go through, but also as part of a system that's trying to balance out for other people, suddenly you'll open your eyes to a, a completely new understanding of human beings and why you're so stuck in certain things and how no matter how much therapy and how much beliefs you go through, if this is a systemic loyalty, it won't break until you see it as a whole with the rest of the system. So we also oh, wow. offer uh, a six-week curriculum specifically surrounding biotypes and these systemic psychologies, the systemic loyalties. So if you're going through something, go ahead and visit rgpdevelopment.com. There is workshops available. Uh, you have to do the intro first before the BYB. It is a prerequisite, but we offer bundles on there as well. So if you're going through something around this and you want you know, to, to work through it with Rodrigo, uh, we have a, a curriculum for you to do it. Um, and we hope to see you soon. Uh, also, if you're interested in hearing the longer version of this episode because we're about to dive in a little bit deeper with our patrons go to patreon.com slash rgp development you can hear the full episode of this episode the full version of this episode uh over on our patreon yeah thanks (laughs) full episode of the episode huh full episode of this episode uh go to rgp patreon.com slash rgp development to get a longer version go to rgpdevelopment.com to find out more about our workshops classes and curriculums that we've got going thank you all for listening Want more Biotypical? Well, good news. There's a longer version of this episode available at patreon.com slash rgpdevelopment. There, you'll also be able to find ways to get on the podcast yourself, ask questions, as well as watch a live taping remotely. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast and subscribing. Remember to rate this five stars wherever you're listening to it, and we'll see you next time.